Well, I want to uh, invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Proverbs 29, verse 18. Proverbs 29, verse 18. This is one of those familiar verses in the Bible that often gets misinterpreted and misapplied. I'm sure you've all heard it before, at least the first half of it, uh, in the King James Version. Mind you, this is what you've heard. Where there is no vision, what? The people perish. I think this verse is often quoted by Christian leaders and embraced by their followers as a biblical basis for the importance of casting vision or pursuing a vision. And without a clear vision, as the story goes, a church will perish. It won't flourish. But listen to how the New American Standard translates this verse. Proverbs 29, verse 18 Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. I even like, in this case, the the NIV even better. If you have the New International Version, it says this, where there is no, what? Those of you that have an NIV, no revelation, the people cast off restraint. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says it well, without revelation, people run wild. A little bit different take on that verse, right, than how it's often used. Well, what is this verse actually saying? When it says, where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. Well, in the Old Testament, God's word was brought to the people by the prophets who received God's word many times through what? Visions. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli, and word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. Of course, that was before he was about to have a vision from the Lord. Amos chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather a famine for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. So I think what this proverb simply says is, that we can't survive without the Word of God. But there's more to this verse. Notice there's a but, and this tells us that the second half of the verse further clarifies the first half of the verse. Notice what it says here, where there's no vision, the people are unrestrained, but happy is he who keeps the law. So the contrast here is being made between those who either don't have God's word or who ignore God's word with those who hear and heed God's word. And so whenever or wherever the word of God is not preached or not applied, people will live sinful lives. They'll be unrestrained. But whenever and wherever the word of God is faithfully proclaimed and obeyed, people will be happy and blessed. All that to say, this verse really has little to do with visionary leadership 
or casting a vision for people to follow and fulfill. But in looking at this verse and considering this verse, I do think we can safely say that the best way for a leader to cast vision for people is not to share his hopes, his dreams, his goals, but to simply preach God's word. And a pastor who consistently and correctly explains and applies God's word provides what his people need most and what his church needs most to grow and to flourish. I was thinking about this in the last church that I had the privilege of um, really being trained and equipped in as a youth pastor and watching the senior pastor for some 10 years. Uh, I don't ever remember him uh, preaching a vision message, if you will. It was just week after week, Sunday after Sunday, month after month, year after year, expositing books of the Bible, and that was how he was providing vision, if you will, revelation for his church. Obviously, this is a very personal matter for me as a pastor, since one of my roles, one of my responsibilities is to provide vision and direction for our church. And while I trust that the faithful preaching of God's word is sufficient to keep us focused and motivated as a church, every so often I do feel compelled to encourage and challenge us to consider the areas in our lives, the areas in the life of our church where we can improve, or in Paul's words to the church in Thessalonica, how we can excel what? Still more, right? Over the past few weeks, those of us who God has called to lead our church, I'm talking about the pastors, the elders, the deacons, have been spending time together um, in person and through email, um, honestly and candidly discussing the strengths and weaknesses of our church. Thankfully, uh, there are many things, by God's grace, that we are doing well as a church. Hopefully, you could say that we are teaching God's word well. We are being faithful to expound, exposit, explain, and apply the word of God. We're, We're discipling well. We're encouraging people to be involved in discipleship relationships and, and grow groups and, and one-on-one meetings, and, and we're doing counseling well. What a tremendous ministry that has become in the life of our church, and, and uh, we're ministering to kids and students along with men and women. We have ministries for each one of these um, kind of people groups, if you will, in our church, and I believe those ministries are all going uh, very well. Um, and I think probably more than anything, what we all agreed on Maybe our, our strength or our sweet spot is caring for one another, that we, we rally around one another well. When someone is, is, is in need, we, we come around them and we serve them well, and that's what the body of Christ is designed to do. And so it's easy, it's fun to talk about what we like about our church, the things that we are uh, doing well as a church, but it's not so easy, it's not so fun to talk about what we don't like about our church or what our church doesn't do well. And the one area that we all agree that we need to improve in is having a greater burden as a church to reach out more to lost people so that we can make a greater impact for Christ in our community. That's been something that 
some of you have expressed to us as leaders that, that that's a burden that you have, that you feel that's an area that we could uh, improve in, that we could excel still more in. And I just want to remind you and remind all of us that from day one, the mission of this church has been this. We exist to glorify God by proclaiming and living His Word so that people come to know Christ and grow to be like Him. Hopefully that's not the first time you've ever heard that, unless you're maybe newer to our church, but this is our mission statement. We exist to glorify God by proclaiming and living His Word so that people come to know Christ and grow to be like Him. In fact, we have it on the back of the bulletin every Sunday as a reminder. We actually put it up on the wall out there in the foyer so when you come in, hopefully you see that and are reminded, okay, that's what we're all about as a church. We actually have it on the homepage of our website so that when you go on that uh, to utilize something there or, or somebody in our community goes there, they'll see that, that this is what we're all about. This is our, our purpose. And I think it's very important that every church have a clearly defined mission or goal or target at which they're aiming. The question is, how should a church, how does a church come up with its mission? Where, where did we come up with that mission statement? Where, are, there, are there like books about like, here's some sample mission statements that, that you can pick and choose from? And, and how, where do you, do you, do you go on other people's websites and just rob, steal, and pillage their, their mission statement? How, how, where do you go to come up with your mission statement? Well, naturally, we should go where? To the Bible, and should study God's word to find out what he says the mission or purpose of the church is. And I think the best place to go in the Bible to discover God's purpose for the church is what we call the great, what? Commission, which is recorded in different words and in different ways in all four of the Gospels. And I want us to look at the great commission in the four Gospels this morning, starting with Matthew chapter 28. This is, this is the passage that uh, probably comes first to all of our minds when we talk about the Great Commission. This is Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus said, Go therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. These are Jesus' famous last words to his disciples. These were his marching orders, if you will, for their ministry. Uh, He very clearly outlined for them their mission, their purpose, which is our mission and our purpose as followers of Christ. And what we see here is not only what we're supposed to do, but how we're supposed to do it. You may not see this in the English translation, but uh, when you look at the original language here, uh, in this verse, there's only one main verb, which is supported by three participles. And so uh, I'm sure you've all heard the, the, the preacher I have, I know, um, especially the one that uh, wants to stir us all up to, to, to evangelize and, and be a missionary, and, and you heard a pulpit-pounding sermon about going. You need to go. The Bible says you need to go. 
And, and the emphasis is placed on going, whereas the emphasis that Jesus placed in this sentence is not go, it's what? Make disciples. That's the verb. The main verb is make disciples. But the question is, okay, well, number one is what does it mean to make disciples? It means make other people like you. He was talking to two disciples, his disciples. Go make disciples. In other words, you need to make other disciples. In the same way I made you a disciple, in other words, I introduced you to who I am, and I discipled you, I taught you, I trained you, I equipped you to, to obey me and to follow me. You need to now go and introduce others to Jesus Christ and help them to understand who I am, what I did for them, and, and, and how to follow me, how to obey me and live a life that's pleasing to me. So how do we do that? How do we make disciples? Well, there's three participles here. Number one is going. It literally should be going, make disciples of all nations. And so uh, literally you could say, as you're going out, make disciples of all nations. And here's the second participle, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which implies salvation, that you've led someone to Christ, because the first act of obedience after you become a Christian is to what? to get baptized, right? So the implication is that they've come to know Christ. And then third, the third participle is teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So here we see the sanctification process. We see people being helped in their walk with Christ to grow in Christ. And so what we see here in the Great Commission is that the church exists to evangelize sinners and equip the saints. It's not only our responsibility, as a church, to reach people for Christ, but we also need to teach them to obey Christ. Or, as I recently heard it said, and I liked that, that our church exists to help people find and follow Jesus. I think that's what this commission is all about. And so the goal of the church is to help people become not just Christians, but mature Christians. Uh, they are to grow, we are to grow into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, which is why God saved us in the first place. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Romans 8, 29. Now, Mark and Luke both repeated the Great Commission, again, in different words and in different ways. Notice Mark chapter 16, verse 15, very short, concise, Mark records in Mark 16, 15, Jesus said to them, to the disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And then look at Luke. Luke chapter 24. Luke, being the longest of the gospels, has the longest record of the Great Commission. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Now Jesus said to them, the disciples are there in the upper room. He says, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus was explaining the gospel to them. This is the good news of salvation. 
that he had secured through his death and resurrection. And then notice verse 48, he said plainly, you are witnesses of these things. In other words, you've, you've seen all these things. You've seen my life. You've seen my death. You've seen my resurrection. And so now, behold, verse 49, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. So Jesus was sending them out, but before they went out, he wanted to send who? The Holy Spirit, right? To help them fulfill the Great Commission. And when you read Luke chapter 24, it just begs for some kind of, um, um, I guess, a sequel, if you will. And so we know there's a sequel to the book of, uh, book of Luke, and it's the book of Acts, right? Look at Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, we see the coming of the Holy Spirit, but again, Jesus... Um, through the, the words of Luke here, in Acts 1.8, Jesus said to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my, what? Witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside him them they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. In other words, hey guys, why, why are you sitting there gawking at the sky? He's coming back. He told you he was going to come back. But, but in the meantime, you've got a job to do. You've got a mission to accomplish. And really, the rest of the book of Acts chronicles how Christ's disciples, this motley crew of, of men, fulfilled the Great Commission and turned the world upside down with the gospel. In fact, Acts chapter 2, we have recorded the first sermon that Peter preached and, and, and the um, amazing results or fruit from that first sermon. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? In other words, if you remember in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came. They were in the upper room praying and waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and they began to speak in all sorts of different languages that they had never learned before. And they were sharing the gospel so that everyone who had come from all over the known world and were at Jerusalem at that time, they were hearing the gospel in their own language. And they were saying, what's going on here? Are you guys drunk? And, and Paul says, hey, it's like nine in the morning. No, we're not drunk. This is what's happened. The Spirit of God has come, even as Jesus promised, and, and he explained to them uh, what that meant. And so they were stunned, and they said, hey, what, what are we to do? Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Sounds like he got the message. This is, this is the message Jesus gave them, repentance 
for the forgiveness of sins will be preached, right? So he preaches that message that Jesus told him to preach. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. And so then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people got saved during that first, or as a result of that first message that Peter preached. So then what did they do? The church went from maybe 120 people to 3,000 people overnight. Well, it describes what the church looked like in those early days. Verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They were spending time studying together, learning together, fellowshipping together, breaking bread, eating together, sharing meals together, and maybe even having communion afterwards. That was typically how they did it. They would have a love feast, and then they would have communion as the kind of climax of that, of that feast. And then, of course, they were praying together. And everyone, verse 43, kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all, sharing them with all as anyone might have need. So you can imagine here were all these transplants that were down there on a trip and they weren't prepared to stay there, but they didn't want to leave and so the church had to jump into action and, uh, and take care of one another. And so they began selling things and, 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 and pooling their resources and sharing with one another and just meeting one another's needs. Day by day, verse 46, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. And so the church immediately um, employed hospitality. They began opening up, opening up their homes, right, uh, to share meals with one another, um, to care for one another and meet the needs of one another and get to know one another and grow together. And then I love this, verse 47, praising God the whole time. The whole time they're doing all this stuff. They're praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so we see a model, if you will, of what God intended the church to, to look like, to act like, and it's been communicated in a lot of different ways, but uh, most recently I've appreciated the three G's that the church gathers together for worship, for communion, um, for baptism, um, to hear the teaching of God's word, to pray together, um, to fellowship together. So we gather together and then we grow together, we grow closer to God, we grow closer to each other, that's why we do all that we do with our equipping ministries, our counseling ministries, our children's ministries, our student ministries, our men and women's ministries, um, our grow group ministry, uh, this is all about growing closer to Christ, growing closer to each other, and then all for the purpose of what? What's the third G? Going, 
So we, we gather together, we grow together, and then we go out together uh, into our community to reach more people with the good news of salvation. Uh, some, some of you may have heard it put this way, that, that there's three focuses, if you will, uh, of every uh, biblical church. There's an, there's an upward focus, um, there's an inward focus, and there's an outward focus. Um, there's upward focus, obviously, is focusing on our relationship with God. Um, the inward focus is focusing on a relationship with one another. And then there's an outward focus, focusing on a relationship with lost people. I so appreciate Cal's heart in um, teaching and training and equipping our students to think this way about life and ministry. And if you walk into the student, uh, the student center, which I encourage you to do sometime, you'll see three billboards around, uh, put up on the walls, and, and they simply say, up, in, and out. The point is, uh, okay, over here we're talking about all the things we're doing that, that, re- that deal with our relationship with God. Uh, over here we're looking at all the things we do together as the body of Christ. And then over here we're focused on what we're doing to reach out to the world around us. And so all that to say, we see here a pattern in the New Testament church and, and it's this, that they gathered together to be edified, to be equipped. We, of course, add to worship and to uh, receive the uh, ordinances together and all those things, to sing and to pray, right? They gathered to be edified and equipped, and then they scattered to evangelize. And so it's important for us to, to remember here that, that when we gather on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights and in grow groups throughout the week, the primary purpose is not attracting or reaching the lost. We're, we're, our goal is to nourish and equip the saints. But this is a means to a greater end. And what is that? That we could go out and be faithful, effective witnesses in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and in our schools. And the entire book of Acts just just pulsates with this passion for evangelism. And in these opening chapters, the heartbeat of evangelism begins to beat, and chapter by chapter, it beats faster and louder as the gospel radiated from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the remotest part of the earth. And the book climaxes with with Paul in chapter 28 under house arrest in Rome as a result of his radical, relentless witness to the Gentiles, but by then, the church of Jesus Christ has become unstoppable. And I love how the book of Acts ends, Acts chapter 28, verse 30, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. And then there's a bunch of white space. And you have Romans, which we'll get back to, by the way. I'm chomping at the bit to finish up Romans 7. We'll get there shortly. Not today. That'd be way too long of a sermon. But there's this white space there. And, and what I mean by that is there's this kind of abrupt, open ended conclusion that kind of leaves you hanging. Again, anticipating another sequel. Luke. The Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts, and 
okay, Luke, you, you left us hanging. Well, I don't know if you're into the Marvel movies. Um, my family is, and uh, I just, you know, go along with them because it's a great place to take a nap. And so I'm usually waking up about the credits, and I'm, I, I wake up, and there's the credits rolling, and I get up and, you know, kick the popcorn thing aside and start watching. Don't do it, Dad, Dad, wait, there's, there's something else. Like, what are you talking about? The movie's over. What did I miss? No, there's something else. And, and we've gotten used to these, what's called a post-credit scene. And, and so they, they kind of add one little clip at the end, and it kind of sets you up for the next nap or the next movie, I guess. Um, but when you look at the, the end of the book of Acts, there's a post-credit scene. And here we are sitting there waiting Waiting, okay, what, what is it going to be? What is it going to be? And all of a sudden, the post-credit scene pops up, and guess what? It's us. It's the church. Throughout the generations, we are that post-credit scene. We are the ones who are continuing that mission. And it's as if Luke purposely ended Acts, not with a period, but with like a dotted line, dot, dot, dot. And I think he did that to stress that his record of the birth and growth of the church was an unfinished story. And if you remember from what I just read in the first chapter, the two angels had promised that as soon as the work was completed, Jesus would come back. And the reason why Jesus hasn't come back yet is because the work is not yet complete. The gospel has still not reached the remotest part of the earth. Matthew chapter 24 verse, 24 verse 14 says, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. The end is not yet come because there are people who have yet to hear the gospel or respond to the gospel. And they're not just the unreached people groups on some remote island in the South Pacific or down in the, the Amazon jungle. Some of them are living right here in Montgomery and in Willis and in Magnolia and in the woodlands. And we are the ones who have the privilege and responsibility to tell them what Jesus did to save them and what they must do to be saved. Luke didn't just write the book of Acts merely to document the history of the early church. I think he, he wrote it to encourage and inspire the church for generations to come, in every generation, to remain faithful to the mission to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth, starting with our own local community. Now, those of you that have been a part of Lakeside for a number of years, you may remember that 10 years ago, I preached through the book of Acts. And it was a very deliberate, intentional choice to exposit the book of Acts because I was hoping that God would use it to encourage and inspire us to be fearless, faithful witnesses to lost and dying people across the street and around the world. You may also remember three summers ago, the theme of our summer super study was salt of the earth, based on Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, we are the salt of the earth. 
We are the light set on a hill, right? Jesus never intended um, for us to isolate ourselves from the world, but to infiltrate the world with the truth of the gospel. What what great pictures of salt and light. Um, What is the function, the purpose of Christ's followers? What What purpose do we serve in this world? We're to influence, we're to impact the world. We're not just to congregate together, but to permeate the world around us. And yet the church, unfortunately, is like a salt shaker, Right? And Christians are like grains of salt. And as long as we stay within the safety of the salt shaker, we fail to fulfill the purpose for why we're still here on this earth. Jesus said, you're useless. You're good for nothing. You've lost your purpose for existence. You should be thrown out. You're not worth your salt. And again, just another reminder, one of the many ways that we're reminded in the scriptures that God's goal for us as Christians is to come to church, to be edified, to be equipped, and then pour out of here to make a difference in the world around us. Now, I'm saying all this, and I, even this morning, I'm sounding to myself like a broken record, because I think I regularly remind us of these things particularly in the application questions that I hand out along with the sermons, that what we're learning should be put into practice by sharing the good news of salvation with our neighbors, coworkers, and classmates. And you hear me say that time and time again. But then I have to remember, okay, Peter did say that his job, uh, the job of every pastor is to stir people up by way of reminder, right? And, and, and that's the challenge is reminding us as a church without... Sounding like the same song, second verse, or, oh, I remember that sermon he preached, you know, 10 years ago or three years ago, or, but to how to make it fresh. And so I'm here again this morning, hoping to be used by God to stir us up as we're reminded of his mission for us. And I told you that the Great Commission is repeated in all four Gospels. We, we already looked at Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now take your Bibles and turn to John. And just so you know, you are probably going, okay, where are we turning? Because I don't really remember the Great Commission being included here by John in his record of the life of Christ. And to some degree, you're right. But I would submit to you that that Jesus communicated the Great Commission to his disciples in a different way in the book of John. John chapter 20, verse 21. Again, this is the same time frame as the first three Gospels. It's after his resurrection. It's before his ascension. And so it's in that same window of time where Jesus was communicating his passion um, pointing the disciples to their mission. And notice what it says in John 20, verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. This is the short, sweet version of the Great Commission. And 
it's helpful to know that the word sent is one of the most repeated words throughout John's gospel. Over 30 times, Jesus mentioned that he was sent by God. And this scene climaxed with Jesus telling the disciples that he was sending them into the world just like the Father had sent him into the world. Look back at John chapter 16, verse 5. Again, this is where Jesus was telling them about his return to heaven and how he was going to prepare a place for them. And he's been talking about that. And so he says in verse 5, But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? And then we get to the high priestly prayer in chapter 17, John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Verse 8, for the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them, and they truly understand, understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. Verse 25, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And so they've been hearing all this language about God sending the Son and now He's sending them. And so when we get to chapter 20, verse 21, He says, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. What's the point? God is a sending God. God is a missionary God. He sent his son on a mission to this earth to seek and to save the lost. And Jesus sends those who know that he was sent from God and who believe that he is the son of God. He sends them on that same mission to seek and to save the lost. And so the father sent the son to die on the cross and rise from the dead to save us. And the Son sent the Spirit to help those who are saved to share the good news of salvation with others so that they can be saved. And so the mission of the church is rooted in the very nature of God, the triune God, the Trinity. God is on a mission, if you will, and Christ initiated that mission and he intended the church to fulfill that mission. And it's not so much that the church has a mission from God, but that the mission of God has a church. In other words, we are his missionary instrument. We are his agent in this world. We are a sent community and therefore we must live like it. You may have heard the expression that's being batted around in the church today. We need to live on mission. That's where this is coming from. In other words, as members of Christ Church, we need to view ourselves as missionaries who have been sent by Christ to finish his mission by sharing the gospel where we live, where we work, where we shop, where we go to school, where we hang out, wherever we are. 
And so consequently, missions, we always talk about missions, right? Every church has a missions program. Missions is not just one of the functions or programs of the church, and the church is not the outcome of missions. The church is the mission. That's why a lot of churches are just dropping the S. They're just saying, we're just calling it mission. Because this is who we are. It's not just something we do. It's not just one line item in our budget. It's, it's, it's who we are. We are the mission. Not only does it help maybe to drop the letter S, but adding a couple letters might also be helpful. I'm talking about the, the letters A-L. I assume most of you have heard the term missional. Are you familiar? Who's familiar with that term missional? Anybody? Okay. Not many of you. Okay. Well, we got our work cut out for us this morning, right? No. For those of you that have not heard of that word missional or that term missional, it's become a popular buzzword in the past 10 or 15 years as a result of the missional church movement. Now, the concept of being missional was originally uh, introduced, originally proposed by liberals and ecumenicals, um, but in recent years, the evangelical church has, as someone put it, has pulled it up by the roots and transplanted it in more biblical soil. And, and like most movements in the church, the missional movement is a mixed bag. We would be wise to interact with it cautiously and with a great deal of discernment because we don't want to run off in, in, in a ditch over here or a ditch over there. But I also want to warn us of our tendency just to throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to some of these things. Just because of, oh, we don't like the associations. Oh, that guy ta- uses that term, so we're, we're not going to have anything to do with that. But I would suggest to you that, that, that I think that this whole concept of missional is, is more than just a cool new way to do church. That's typically what these movements are. It's a, it's a cool new way. It's, it's for the hipster generation, right? Or missional. Well, is it really just a, a cool new way to do church? Perhaps, but I personally find several things about this movement very compelling, very convicting. They remind me of things like the church is so much more than a Sunday gathering with some great music and and a good sermon. We're God's people who have the privilege of celebrating and communicating God's story all week with those who will never come to this church and, and frankly could care less about what we're doing here this morning. Somebody recently called our church a unicorn. Like, most people that walk through the doors of the church, this is not the kind of church they're looking for, if you will. Not what they're used to. But the point is, that's the most people in the world. They, they, they don't, they'll probably never come to church. They could care less about what we're doing today. But you know what? They care about you. And they care about how Jesus has changed your life. And you're going to spend time with them this afternoon or this evening or tomorrow or this weekend. You're going to spend time with them. So guess what? You can be the church on mission. 
right? Reaching those people. I think it's also very compelling, very convicting that we as the members of the church need to get out of our holy huddle and engage with the world and become a part of the fabric of our community for the purpose of showing and sharing Christ with those who don't know him. I think it's also compelling and convicting to consider that the church doesn't just exist to benefit and bless us. I hope you feel benefited and blessed by the church, by our church. But it doesn't just exist to bless you or bless me. It exists to benefit and bless those outside the church and not just by doing community projects, which are all well and good, but mainly by building relationships with people who need to hear the gospel. We're not talking about projects, doing projects in the community. We can do that, right? But I'm talking about people, people who need to hear the gospel. Maybe the most compelling and convicting reminder for me as I've interacted with the whole missional church literature and teaching and movement is that a church who loses sight of its mission becomes toxic. It becomes self-absorbed, it becomes ingrown, it becomes apathetic, it becomes stagnant. And instead of being a rescue mission that's constantly looking for new and creative ways to aggressively reach lost people with the gospel, it develops develops into a self-righteous subculture that judges and condemns the lost. Let's be honest, sometimes I think we, as a Bible church, we love the truth more than we love people or lost people. And then lastly, I would just suggest too, another convicting, compelling reminder is that personal one-on-one evangelism is much more impactful than all church, what's called attractional evangelism. In other words, the most effective evangelism happens outside the walls of the church. I want you to watch a quick video right now, and then I'll wrap this up, that is just a simple description of the concept of being missional. Go ahead and watch this. This is the missional church. Simple. In the past, churches have spent large amounts of resources to construct the most attractive places imaginable for the community in which they were situated. Great music, compelling teaching, and a host of programs designed to gather people together were the staple of such church communities. Anyone who wanted to come was welcome, and church members were encouraged to invite their friends and neighbors. Generally, people had a pleasant experience. The people who came and were cared for seemed relatively similar. Education, income, pastimes, race, struggles, and histories seemed to be almost identical. Eventually, someone asked the question, What about all the people who aren't like us, but who live around us? Why aren't they here too? In response, the church increased its marketing budget, direct mailing the community, taking out ads in local papers, buying radio time, releasing a fresh web page, and offering to host the world's greatest event. The church was determined to be the center of everything great that happened in the community. Church members began to rely on the church to do the work of conveying God's story in the world. If someone could be brought to an event, they could hear about Jesus from a professional teacher. Inviting people became synonymous with evangelism. 
The missional church, on the other hand, empowers its members to be the church in the community. The church trains, resources, encourages, and challenges its people to live out the good news in their community with those who would otherwise be suspicious of a church and its marketing efforts. The church sends out its members to live among people unfamiliar with church customs, songs, and what it holds sacred, just like a foreign missionary. The missional church recognizes then that every believer embodies the life of the church in their neighborhood, in their school, or at their place of work, each one of them telling God's story in the context of compassionate and genuine relationships. There I am. Oh, hi. So you may be like, okay, I'm not liking this little mission, missional term. It's uh, kind of sounds too trendy uh, for, for, for me or our church. But I just simply want to point out that what it's communicating is this, that rather than expecting people to come to us, to come to our church, we need to go to them. We need to bring the gospel to them. We need to show them and share with them Jesus. And so what does it all come down to? It comes down to building real-life relationships with unbelievers in our sphere of influence. I think that's the key to reaching people with the gospel. Statistics show that most people who come to know Christ do so not through a church service or a special event, but through the personal witness of a friend or coworker or neighbor or classmate. I'm curious, just, just raise your hand. How many of you guys believe you got saved at a church service or some event? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you guys would say that you, God used a, a neighbor, a friend, a family member, a coworker, classmate to, to expose you to the gospel? Okay, so there was definitely more hands on that, that second one. I don't know about you, that's super convicting to me, <laughs> because I'm the one who's supposed to be serving as the example, right, the model of what it looks like to be a witness, an ambassador for Christ, but frankly, I'm typically so busy planning and putting on all the programs at the church, along with the other pastors and, and leaders that I typically don't have time or don't make time to be with unbelievers. In fact, to my shame, as I thought about this, I couldn't think of a non-Christian friend that I see or hang out with on a regular, consistent basis. Zero non-Christian friends that I hang out with on a consistent, regular basis. And I'm embarrassed to say that I hardly even know our neighbors. Granted, we live on a funky street where it seems like it's a lot of weekenders and they have lake houses and things like that across the street and so they're in and out and it's hard to get to know them. But, but honestly, I... I can't remember a time when we ever invited our neighbors in our subdivision over for dinner to get to know them better. And I was recently very convicted because one of my unsaved neighbors who just recently moved into the house next to us 
was driving out of the subdivision. We were out walking, and he's pulled up, pulled over, and he rolled his window down and said, hey, I'm going to get some, buy some jet skis, and, and, and me and my wife are going to uh, invite you and your wife out, and we're going to go jet skiing, and we're going to have you over for dinner. And I was like, great, that's awesome. And two thoughts crossed my mind. The first thing is, I don't know if I'm going to have time for that because I'm too busy. And the second thought is, why wasn't I saying that to him? Here's an unsaved neighbor showing me up (laughs) as a Christian. That's my job. That's my opportunity. That's my privilege. And so I've been looking, I've been praying for a well, and the Lord gave me one, a well like John 4, the woman at the well. We all have to have a well, a place where we go and where we can spend time with unbelievers. And so it happens to be right now the gym where I work out. And there's a bunch of obviously worldly folks there cussing and flipping each other off during the, during the workout, and they're playing this hip-hop music while we're working out that's all about sexy this and sex that, and... and uh, and it's just talking about yoga pants, and, and I'm like, okay, these people need Jesus, and that's why I'm here. And, and so I've been praying as I go up there early in the morning, Father, would you give me an opportunity to build relationship with these people, to love them, to care for them? I don't even want to tell them I'm a pastor. I just want to be another guy working out there with all these chicks. Don't worry, my, my daughter's with me, so she's keeping me safe. Um, but what a great opportunity. Just, it's like a daily opportunity. I have to be around the world. And, and frankly, the fact that it's so shocking tells me I've been too insulated from the world. Can I encourage you with a couple things, just practically? Just some suggestions for us to live on mission or to be a faithful witness of Christ, however you're comfortable saying it. I don't want to get hung up on the, the language that we use, the terminology that we use. But just a, just a couple of things. How about this? Number one, write down the names of a few people in your sphere of influence who need Christ. Just, just write a short list. Whether it's two people, three people, five people. Just... just a small little list of the unsaved people in your sphere of influence that God's put you around or God's put around you who need Christ. And number two, start praying for them every day that they would get saved. Number three, build a relationship with them. Build a friendship. Be a friend. Don't just hit them over the head with the gospel the first chance you get. Be their friend with the goal of showing them the gospel, sharing the good news of salvation. And then number four, ask God. How about this? Ask God every morning to embolden you, empower you to share the gospel with lost people and ask him to give you an opportunity that day to tell someone about Jesus. I found when I do that, when I literally wake up and pray, Lord, would you give me an opportunity to share Christ with someone today? That's a prayer that God loves to answer. And it just puts your radar up, right? It puts your antenna up. It's like, I'm ready. And so every opportunity that you 
have, then you come into contact with people, it's just your radar's up and maybe this is the answer to my prayer. And then lastly, number five, find someone who can hold you accountable to evangelize the unbelievers where you live and where you eat and where you shop and where you work and where you go to school. We covenant together as a pastoral staff that, you know, we ask each other every week about how's it going with our, you know, marriages and what's going on with our kids and how's your purity and, you know, are you being a man of integrity? And we, we ask all these questions and, and we pray for one another about these things, but rarely do we ever ask each other, hey, did you get a chance to share the gospel this week? Tell me about it. Who are you pursuing? Who are you praying for? Who doesn't know Christ? And so that's a new question we're asking each other every Tuesday. Just to hold each other accountable, just to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That's a question you should ask one another on a regular basis. That's a question that should be asked every time your grow group gets together. That question should be asked. That's fun to talk about. It's exciting to talk about, to pray about. Can you imagine what would happen if this same time next year there was a bunch of new people sitting with us here from our community who probably would have never showed up to church on a Sunday, but you went into their world, right, where they work, where they go to school, where they live, and you were Christ to them, and you shared the gospel with them, and you prayed for them, and God saved them, and now they have a heart for Christ, and they have a heart for the church, and they have a heart for his word, and you were able to help them get plugged into a a good local church. It's true that the majority of the growth that just this church has experienced over the 19 years of our existence has been what I call transfer growth. People that have moved into the area from out of the state or out of the city and uh, they were going to another church somewhere else and they were looking for a new home church. And By God's grace, they found us, and we've embraced them, and we love them. We're so grateful that God led them here, and they're an answer to our prayers. We we pray that like-minded believers in this community would find us so that we can live life together. But not many, not much of our growth has been through conversion growth. People being converted to Christ through someone in our church who has shared the gospel with them. Now again, ultimately that's up to the Lord, right? We can't save anybody. That's his job. And, and ultimately, evangelism or successful evangelism is not fruitfulness, it's faithfulness. And so whether any more people ever show up at this church because they came to know Christ, that's up to the Lord, but The question for us is, are we being faithful to fulfill our mission as a church and as followers of Christ? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this simple concept that you 
sent your son to reach us with the gospel and your son has sent us into the world to reach others with the gospel. Lord, I pray, how have we missed that? How can we go on living and just be content to gather and grow as a church but never go? Seems like we're missing the point. How can we be so busy doing Christian stuff, church stuff, that we leave no time or have little time to engage lost people around us who desperately need the help and the hope of the gospel. Lord, would you reorientate, reorient our minds so that we would think more missionally, whether that's a good term or a bad term? Lord, we, we want to be more like that. And so would you accomplish your work in my heart, in the heart of the other leaders in our church, that we would be able to exemplify what this looks like. And Lord, that all of us as a church would be faithful to impact those that you placed around us with the good news of salvation. And Lord, that we would see people get saved that you would spark a revival in this community through our witness. And we would see many come to know Christ and maybe not join up with us at this church, but maybe join up with another like-minded church. That's not the point. We just want to make sure that we are doing what you've called us to do and being who you've called us to be. So help us do that. By your grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.